I'm on my elbows and knees and just kind of crawling along the trail, tr really just trying to catch my breath because that's the biggest thing that's happening right in that moment is I can't breathe. This is The Fine Line, and I'm your host, Matt Hansen. How many times have you gone out for a quick ride or hike or trail run and thought, oh, it's just out my back door, I'll be back in no time. What's the worst thing that can happen? For anyone living in a mountain town like Jackson, we're fortunate to have trails literally right out our back door. Just throw on your shoes, hop on your bike, and head out on that trail that you've been on hundreds of times. Like, you could ride that thing blindfolded with one arm tied behind your back. And most of the time, it's all good. You're left feeling healthy and happy to live in such a remarkable place with such easy access to the outdoors. But as we all know, every once in a while, things don't go according to plan. In this episode of The Fine Line, we'll look at one of those times, from July 13th, 2022. It goes to show that a mishap on even the most familiar trail can leave you with potentially serious injuries that require numerous resources and agencies to help you get home safely. The Fine Line is produced by Backcountry Zero, a vision of the Teton County Search and Rescue Foundation to use storytelling as a way to elevate education and awareness about backcountry safety. It's just one way that we can try to achieve our goal of eliminating fatalities and serious injuries in the Jackson Hole backcountry. You can support this effort and the volunteers at Teton County Search and Rescue by clicking into tetoncountysar.org slash donate. We'll be right back. The Fine Line is presented by Roadhouse Brewing Company, supporting backcountry safety and the Jackson Hole community since 2012. Located in the heart of the Tetons, Roadhouse Brewing Company embodies the authentic spirit of the West, where your word is your honor, quality is your craft, and adventure is rooted in your soul. Roadhouse is a certified B Corp, best for the world company, helping to preserve this beautiful land we call home. The Roadhouse Pub and Eatery is located on the square in downtown Jackson, and look for their beer and cans at a store near you. Visit roadhousebrewery.com. The Fine Line is also presented by Steo. At home in the Tetons, Steo lives and loves the mountain life. Time spent outside on trails, in rivers, and on summits inspires everything they create. That's why Steo is committed to a higher standard of sustainability, using responsible materials like Blue Sign approved textiles, organic cotton, RDS certified down, and recycled fabrics whenever possible. In their 11th year, Steo supports causes that protect our most treasured places and encourages diversity of access. Most recently, Steo has become a climate neutral certified company. Let the outside in at steo.com. I think Ted and I both had sort of late morning meetings, and so we were looking for something that was about two to three hours, um, leaving from town so we could each get back to work. My name is Brian Schilling. I've lived in Jackson since 1994. I am the Pathways Coordinator for the town of Jackson and Teton County, which means that I'm in charge of all of the bicycle pathways, pedestrian pathways, anything related to bicycle, pedestrian, transportation, active transportation. I've been riding a bike my entire life. I spent many years as a road bike racer, a mountain bike racer, 
And more recently, you know, the last 10 years or so, I've been mostly just riding my bike for local transportation, occasionally doing fun rides with friends, not much racing in the last 10 years or, well, 13 years since my daughter was born, but um, have spent the majority of my adult life riding bikes, racing bikes, doing things related to bikes, um, coaching bikes, building infrastructure for bikes. So a lot of, a lot of bikes in my life. My recollection is that the conditions were really good. I think we'd had some rain maybe the day or two days before, so it was not overly dry, but basically a great day for riding and great conditions. My name is Ted Kyle. I moved to Jackson in about 1992. I've been mountain biking since around then and biking my whole life prior to that as well. I work for Snow King Mountain. I run the bike shop and ski shop, Snow King Mountain Sports. I've got a family, wife, and two kids who love to bike. My bike choice recently changed due to my son's infatuation with lift serve biking, so I switched to a more enduro-style bike to try to keep up with him. And I'm a volunteer on Teton County Search and Rescue, and I joined the team in 2001. Yes, um, my name is Jason McKellen. I live in Boulder, Colorado, but I used to live in Jackson uh, back in the 90s, but I've been here for about 20 years. I was in Jackson for about six years, so I'll go back usually once or twice a year to visit friends like Ted and Brian and family. I've been biking also my whole life, mountain biking, you know, since about the early 90s, about when I moved to Jackson. Brian, Ted, and Jason all went to college together at Middlebury in Vermont in the early 90s. They all moved out to Jackson shortly afterward, and ever since have been lifelong friends and adventure partners. And they are now all married with children, but continue to get out together as much as possible. Mountain towns like Jackson are full of these kinds of people, moms and dads in their 40s and 50s who still get after it, and can ride their bikes up and down a trail for three hours, no problem. Like on this day, when these guys decided to ride probably the most classic loop in Jackson. And the, the name of this ride is sort of it's West Game, Game Cash. It's a variation on some of the loops that are in the, the greater Snow King area. So it involves riding up the face of Snow King Mountain. Um, there's a variety of ways to do it, but we took Farron Slide up to the Snow King Saddle, then you descend Wilson Canyon to the West Game Junction, go down West Game to Game Creek, back up Game Creek, and then come back into town on Cache Creek. And so it involves a 1,500-foot climb up Snow King, a little bit more climbing to get to the, the top of the Game Creek Junction, and then just a nice downhill coming back down Cache Creek. So good, yeah, two, two-and-a-half-hour ride, 15 miles, something you can do before a late morning meeting. All's good, if it goes according to plan. <laughs> but trail was in good shape. It wasn't excessively overgrown. That part of the trail can get very overgrown, but definitely uh, grasses and ground growth were starting to come up, you know, two feet or so, three feet off the ground in some places. It was mid-July. West Game itself is really known for having just massively overgrown trails. Sometimes you can't even see the trail when you're trying to bomb down it. It's commonly referred to as the Vietnam section. The section of trail in Wilson Canyon where I crashed is not that, it doesn't have that same kind of vegetation, but it's known in that it's, there was a, a burn in there a couple of years ago. And so there's a lot of downfall. There's a lot of um, new regrowth of grasses and things like that. So 
my rec- recollection on that day is is overcast. It was nice, cool temperatures. It was actually a, just a beautiful day to go for a, a mountain bike ride in mid-July. Riding through Wilson Canyon was not excessively overgrown, but there was it was a time of year where we had a lot of vegetation. Cash Game was the yeah. ride that everybody wanted to do. And actually, this ride was frequently called the Snow King Race Course back then, that you would do Cash Game up west and back to Snow King, sometimes coming down the actual face of Snow King on the roads, or there are various options for it. And the ride, the way we did it, you can do it in either direction. Uh, I had done it a couple of weeks prior the opposite direction with another friend and found that I didn't like the big climb on that one as much. So I was glad to be doing it counterclockwise because I generally enjoy it more that way. I actually did the old race course as a race. More recent years, they've rerouted sections of the trail. They've made it a lot better. I mean, I think it started originally as a, a game trail or, you know, just it was not purpose built to be a mountain bike trail. And so um, they've made some of the climbs a lot better. They've made the descents a lot better. They've made the trail a lot more sustainable so you're not dealing with erosion every year it's so overall it's a much better experience than it was say in 1994 but it still has some challenging sections i I do want to ask you also with this being sort of close to town what do you bring in your bike pack what's your what does your kit look like when you're gonna run the farron's west game cash loop yeah i've gone to a lighter pack recently not using a big uh, camelback type backpack so i'd have a, a waist pack that has a flat kit a really simple first aid kit and a snack on a day like this i didn't really carry extra layers because the weather was looking good and we weren't going to be out that long sometimes longer rides i will carry more layers or something but other than water and food i didn't have and a flat kit i didn't have a whole lot of extra stuff that day I typically carry a, a very small camelback style hydration pack uh, with maybe one wind layer or rain layer in it. This day, I probably had a few, you know, energy food type items, some water, a light wind layer, and that was and my phone. That was probably about it. Yeah. So for that ride, I probably had about the same thing. I think I had a hip pack and just food and a repair kit. My first aid kit is is basically very, very basic with, but mostly just duct tape. Yeah, and I think I maybe had another layer, just maybe because we started early, it was was cool. And then a phone. The proximity of that ride to town and the fact that it was just a pre-work ride, you know, played into the decision-making on not bringing any sort of first aid kit, emergency devices, we call this more of a front country ride because it does feel like just our, our backyard trails. I don't typically bring a whole lot with me. It's also not a terribly technical ride. Going down West Cape has some slightly steep spots, but it's not like going up on the pass where there's a lot of opportunity to get hurt. It's generally a pretty easy ride. Since 2013, Teton County Search and Rescue has responded to 42 calls in the greater Snow King area or as you might call it, the Snow King Massif. Of those 42 calls, 16 have come from mountain bikers, and those calls have become more frequent every year. Last summer, Teton County Search and Rescue responded to 13 mountain bike accidents, the most ever in a single season across Teton County. Three of those were in the Snow King Cash Creek area, and all were quite serious. So even though it's close to town and you don't always have to drive to the trailhead, it's good to remember that this area should still be considered the backcountry. I mean, I think everything started off great and we were all feeling well. 
we're not maybe as fast as we once were in our 20s, but um, yeah, it was just, it was a lovely day for a, a ride. We headed up fair and slide. It was going great. I think Ted and I were both on flat pedals, which maybe plays a factor in this story. But, and that's something I, I don't typically do. I usually ride with clipless pedals in the backcountry or you know, for cross-country rides. We've both been riding with our kids out of the village a lot more these days, and so I've been using flat pedals for that. And Ted had mentioned to me a couple weeks before how he's, his goal for this year was to ride just flat pedals, not even, not even use clipless pedals even for backcountry rides or cross-country rides. So I thought, you know, maybe I'll give that a shot. I'm riding, you know, I, I know I can keep up with these guys just fine, so I'll put on my flat pedals and see how it goes. And so our climb up Ferens was maybe a little slower than usual, but um, what was it? You know, it's half an hour, 45 minutes to the top. And yeah, I think we topped out at 48 or 50 minutes. For me, 45 is a really good time, but the introduction of flat pedals this summer took a couple minutes off that. And we might have stopped to chat once, but we were all up there feeling good by the top. I don't think any of us were overly tired or anything like that. Everything had gone very smoothly. So we stopped at the saddle, took a quick break, had a you know, sip of water, maybe grabbed a bite to eat. Jason and Ted headed out first. I let them go ahead, and while I let some air out of my tires, I was running higher pressure for the climb, and then decided to bleed some air so I had a little bit better traction on the descent. And so they probably got a minute, minute, you know, minute and a half head start on me for the descent. Yeah, and any chance I have to get ahead of Brian and Jason, I take advantage of because they're usually faster than me. So I felt pretty good on the descent. My bike does descending really well and felt good kind of making good time on the way down. I could hear Jason behind me and assume Brian was right behind him. And so we actually started up the next short climb uh, when we noticed that Brian wasn't there. So departing from the Snow King saddle with the, the, the intersection of um, Farron's and the Skyline Trail, the first part of the trail is somewhat technical. It's got a steeper little bit of downhill section with some switchbacks. But then after a mile or so, you transition into kind of a contour trail, and it has some flow aspects to it, and things open up. And so you're not, not dropping so much elevation, but you're still going pretty quickly on this trail. And this is uh, just before the intersection of Wilson Canyon and the West Game Trail. And this is where the, the burn area is. And so there's a lot of downfall. There's a lot of stumps. There's a lot of trees that have fallen across the trail that have been cut. My mindset at this point is that I'm still trying to catch up to Ted and Jason. And I'm kind of annoyed that I haven't because I'm so much faster than they are. <laughs> so... I'm kind of letting it letting it go a little bit, and it, it is a fun section of trail, and it does have this nice flow to it. And I have, you know, been spending the last couple of years improving my downhill skills a lot in my mind, having been riding at Teton Village or other places with my son Andy, and uh, that's just been a great training tool as far as as working on my downhilling and my my turns and all that. So I'm feeling pretty good, and I'm really kind of just letting it rip. All of a sudden, I'm getting really pretty close to the uh, the junction with West Game, and I, I clip a split log, um, a log that has fallen across the trail and has been cut on either side. I hit it with my right pedal, and the impact of that 
rotates me and drives me into the ground with a lot of velocity and a lot of force and it happens really quickly. It's just sort of a boom, boom. And I don't really have, I have no time to really react to it. I didn't even realize that I was falling until I hit the ground and was kind of rolling out of it. And right at the moment of impact, I just, I felt a whole lot of snaps in my back. So I, I hit uh, on my backside, on my left, the left side of my torso and I just felt a bunch of stuff kind of go wrong and tumble out of that. I'm basically on my hands and knees and immediately know that this is, you know, this is a big impact and this is kind of a serious crash. There's a few moments of, you know, you're triaging and you're kind of doing a systems check and I'm, I quickly realized that this is not one of those crashes where it hurts really bad right at the start and then you just shake it off. Like, it, the, the pain didn't dissipate at all and it didn't feel like it was going to go anywhere. So I'm on my elbows and knees and just kind of crawling along the trail, tr really just trying to catch my breath because that's the, the biggest thing that's happening right in that moment is I can't breathe. I'm able to inhale, but I'm having a hard, really hard time exhaling. And so it's like, <gasps> and then it just gets stuck. And I have to kind of use every muscle in my upper body to try to force the air out. I could very much tell that like the whole left side of my torso was messed up. A few, you know, a lot of things go through your head right then. And <laughs> one of the first things that occurred to me is like, I'm crawling, which is a good sign. I didn't hit my head, which is a good sign. So I think I'm going to be okay, but I'm still kind of going through the systems check and trying to figure out, assess what is wrong. I, I know immediately that I'm going to need help. And so I make this really pathetic um, attempt to yell, hoping that maybe Ted and Jason are just, I've, I've almost caught them and that they can somehow hear me. And it really comes out more like a, a baby lamb bleeding for its mom. <laughs> so it, I, I didn't... I, <laughs> It didn't really have much effect. So I, I quickly stopped that tactic and have enough adrenaline that I can I kind of get my, my camel back off and just trying to find some position that I can breathe without excruciating pain. I fish my phone out of it. My phone is in my pant leg pocket. So I fish that out and quickly look at it and see that I don't have a signal and just toss it aside. And in retrospect, I should have put it into emergency mode and maybe I would have gotten a signal. From there, I, I sort of find a position where I'm still on my elbows and my knees kind of hunched over and I've got my head resting on my, my fists, which are on the trail. And I'm not just focusing on like trying to breathe and get air in and out. Quickly kind of realize like, okay, I'm in a rescue situation here. Like I'm, I'm, I'm not able to do much on my own. I can't even move without, you know, just kind of my whole upper body convulsing in pain. I think we actually heard something which could have been Brian, but we were, I think, both thinking optimistically that it was more likely a flat tire or something like that. And that we would see him on the trail fixing his flat or something. And we started back, I think Jason was actually, I was in the lead going up. So he was on the lead heading back. And I remember seeing, it was kind of tough to take in exactly what we were seeing at first because, you know, as you said, Brian's on his knees and elbows. So it wasn't 
It wasn't like he was standing there fixing a flat. It was just sort of him crunched down on the trail. Kind of hoping, expecting that he, at this point, when we when we still didn't see him riding back to us, that you know you kind of assume with mountain bike with mountain biking as opposed to other things, you say okay, it's, you know it's probably mechanical or flat tire. So it's kind of looking for his bike being on the side and Brian fixing it, kind of thing. And it was you know I don't know that I saw him or his bike first, but I think I saw him first, and it was it was obvious that he wasn't near his bike. But I think we, it was only until we got pretty close that we could actually see him, just maybe a few yards away. Yeah, and I think we asked him some questions about what had happened, how he felt, got his response about intense pain. I remember pulling up the back of his shirt to look at his back and, and kind of feel down his spine. And you know his perception of feeling like his back was twisted kind of reminds me of what I felt like we saw that um, I think the muscles were cramped in a way that was creating an odd sort of u-shaped bend in his back but it definitely made me concerned about any fractures in that area that could have happened that uh, it was good he had feeling in his extremities but we were worried about moving him and any additional damage we might do then it increases the intensity both because of friend but also because we're right there when it happens typically with search and rescue, we get a call, and then it takes us some amount of time to get there. And during that time, you, you process what you're going to do. Okay, we're going to get there. We're going to size up the scene. We're going to check out the patient. We're going to do this. We probably are going as a group, so we're assigning roles. We have some amazing medical professionals on the team. So while I have some training, I don't really get to touch patients that often because usually there's a doctor or a nurse with us who's taking care of that. So you have that time to go through everything that's going to happen. You're, you're, you're riding in a car, you're hiking, you're skinning in, you're doing whatever it takes to get to the patient. So it feels very much less like an emergency by the time we got we get there because we've already pre-planned for what's going to happen. There wasn't any pre-planning. This was just, boom, here it is. What do we do? And it was really clear at first that Brian was in tough shape and that we needed to get him out. We got relatively lucky. Maybe the difference between... Brian laying on the ground and me standing up, I had one bar of service. I walked up and down the trail, kind of found what I felt like it was a spot was a little bit better. And I called directly to 911 and identified myself both by name and we all have SR numbers on the team. So by my SR number, SR 13, explained where we were, asked them if they could, if they saw my coordinates from the 911 call, they did. Asked them to convene a board page to work on planning a heli evacuation from that spot. So here's some terminology. A board page refers to a conference call held among the six board of advisors on Teton County Search and Rescue. These advisors are volunteers on the team who are elected by their teammates to serve leadership roles. The advisors are often the ones who get the first call from dispatch after a 911 call in the middle of the night or in this case, just after 9.30 in the morning. And so that board page is often the first step in how the team mobilizes for a rescue. It was really clear that moving him to any position wasn't, wasn't going to work for us. We talk in first day, we talk about a position of comfort, and a lot of times that's laying on your side. And we tried various things. I think we did get you on your side briefly, but you were probably screaming at us. It definitely wasn't a good thing. The wheel litter, which would be our non-heli evacuation, would have been 
two miles roughly towards the top of Snow King, relatively rough ride in places, and would have required that he could lay down, either on his back or his side or something like that. We would have had to move him into the wheel litter and then would have had to change, you know, come up with some stable position like that, which was tough to picture at that point. His breathing right from the start was disturbing both Jason and I. It was very shallow, very rapid. He couldn't take a deep breath, and it was unclear if he was really getting a full level of oxygen. First of all, just just going over my experience, I've, um, you know, as, as Ted and I talked about, we were on ski patrol together um, in college, but I've wilderness first responder training and I've been a guide and river guide and ski guide and all of that. So I've been on a lot of rescues as well, not as search and rescue, but in taking people out. And, you know, the difference between coming upon a stranger versus a friend you know, if you're coming upon a stranger, you're trying to assess their mental state, you're trying to figure out what happened, you're trying to figure out where they came from and all of that, and it's a lot more efficient, right? We didn't have to figure out, gosh, he seems in distress, you know, is this somebody else, did he maybe have medications before, or is he maybe on some, you know, we knew all of that, so that was all fairly easy, but otherwise, I would say, because Ben and I have a fair amount of experience, you know, our training, we just kind of went into the mode overall and we could also talk to brian kind of in a different way just a little bit we were trying to get him onto a into a stable position but it was just very obvious that he was in a stable position. he was in the best position that he could be in and we didn't again have to you know kind of negotiate with him or anything about that trying to get him we just we instantly kind of knew the one difference i would say though and it was incredible about having Ted there is because I'm not on search and rescue, you know, I was kind of looking around and starting to assess, okay, how are we going to get out of here? And I was thinking, I kind of think we need a helicopter, but um, one, I, I wouldn't have been necessarily confident in that decision. And two, in my experience, when you call first responders, they they don't necessarily know your experience. And so there's always even if you say something like, hey, we need a helicopter, if you're just, you know, a regular person calling them, they don't necessarily know. It was very nice and very convenient that Ted could make that judgment right away, one. And two, when he called in, that that judgment was communicated and understood right away from from those responding. I'm happy to go on the record and state that I was totally confident that we needed a helicopter. I was really, really hoping. I didn't tell Ted, get the heli, but I was listening to him on the phone, and I was really happy when I heard him say, I think we're going to need the heli. So for us, the helicopter is a great tool, and we train with it a lot, and it's a great way to speed up rescues and increase the safety of rescues. Right now, we have different situations in the winter than we do in, in the summer. In the winter, we have a con contract ship, based at the hangar in town, and we can make the decision when it's time to go, when it's appropriate to use a helicopter. We go through a fairly detailed decision-making process to make sure that it's the safest, most efficient thing to use for that call-out. But in the winter, it's our decision. Uh, the, the team, the board members, people involved make that decision. In the summer, that same ship is used by the Forest Service and the Park Service primarily for wildland firefighting and wilderness rescue. During the summer, we contact the helicopter, the, the park, 
and request use of the helicopter with their pilot and typically with their crew. And there's a bit of a process based on availability, based on the need, based on whether it's the right tool for the job. Typically, the, the board will go through that discussion with, with heli-dispatch, you know, why we need it, what we need it for, how long it's going to take. And assuming it's available, we usually get it. And we usually get it with their crew, which is fine. But there is, there is some time, there is some decision-making that goes into it. And there is the possibility that they could say, sorry, the helicopter is in use for a fire or another rescue or, or things like that. Due to the unpredictability of this type of helicopter scenario, the team and TCSAR Foundation recently conducted a year-long capital campaign to raise money to purchase a year-round rescue helicopter for Teton County. It was known as Mission Critical, and with exceptional community support, the campaign was completed at the end of May 2023, just a few weeks ago at the time of this recording. Brian Schilling and his wife Maggie, and many others from all walks of life, worked diligently behind the scenes to help support this effort every step of the way. The new helicopter is scheduled to arrive this fall, in October, and will be available for rescue missions and to help our friends and neighbors and partnering agencies all year long. In this case, things worked out really well. Teton County Dispatch assembled the Teton County Search and Rescue Board in a conference call, and they were able to patch me in, and very quickly I could say, yep, this is what we've got. I described Brian's symptoms, described where we were. I said the wheel litter, he can't, he can't move at this point. Wheel litter does not seem like a good answer. We need the helicopter. And there would probably be a short haul rescue. There weren't landing zones <laughs> near us that I felt like the helicopter could land close enough and transporting him to the ship was going to be challenging. And I knew that the park could do a short haul evacuation uh, with him and one attendant, and I felt like that was the best option for Brian's situation. So these were things that I was actually all aware of during the time that I was lying there on the trail, and so I was sort of doing all this these calculations in my head and hoping that the helicopter was going to be available and that they were going to release it to come get me. And so Ted and Jason were great about kind of keeping me updated and obviously on what was going on. And I knew enough about search and rescue, how rescues often play out and kind of the timelines, you know, whenever we're out with Ted, where we ask him what latest rescue he's been on and he'll tell us different stories about rescuing snowmobilers or skiers or whomever needs, whoever needs help. And the not that knowledge of the fact that search and rescue was out there was very, you know, is an available option was very reassuring. That actually, just knowing that helped, I think, keep me pretty calm and, and definitely helped kind of reduce my anxiety. At some point when I was on hold, I think with 911, when they were assembling the, the board, and I was probably 50 feet plus or minus away from Brian just so that I could talk more clearly and not worry about saying anything that might make him disturbed. Jason walked over and said, Brian's breathing is getting worse. If it gets any worse, we're going to be in big trouble. And I think that helped me, that phrase, that concept helped me emphasize when I did speak to the board that, hey, this is, we have to do this right now. Because um, I couldn't picture any way that we could 
get Brian onto his back if we had to start artificial, you know, breathing for him, anything like that. It was going to be traumatic and very challenging. So that moment was definitely a maybe a turning point. I think I was already asking for the heli, but I think that that made it clear that we needed it as fast as possible. You know, in any situation like that, you're kind of looking to see, okay, is the patient stabilized or are they getting worse or are they hopefully getting better? Can we get them to be, you know, more comfortable and able to breathe? Because breathing was the issue right here. And it was obvious that he had broken ribs. You know, the lungs could be compromised. And that was a period where he just was not getting comfortable and his breathing was almost becoming more labored, even slightly. And so that's why I communicated that to Ted, that I did not think we could get him to be comfortable and, you know, breathing normally with what we had there. So finally, I'll also add that the helicopter is great, sure, to get to evacuate the patient, but it's also great to get medical personnel and their equipment to the patient as quickly as possible. And again, with the situation that Ted and I are in, it's a little bit frustrating because you can only do so much. You don't have a painkiller, you don't have oxygen, you don't have various things that would help. Um, and so it's kind of frustrating to sit there and basically, you know, I kind of joked that at one point I was just wadding away flies and that was kind of the only thing I could do. It was, again, very nice that the helicopter could get, you know, the search and rescue there, but and also all of the equipment that they could bring to help Brian get comfortable as soon as possible. To be fair, swatting the flies was immensely helpful. The, the deer flies up there are awful. <laughs> One thing I thought when I first crashed and was waiting there, I was like, okay, either someone's going to ride down the trail and hit me, but, like, they'll see my bike, they'll see me. Or I, I'm like, please just don't let there be a bear in the area because the bear, I, I'm going to be completely defenseless against anything, that a bear. And sure enough, a little bit later, luckily, not while I was alone, but one of the, the responders who was coming down the trail on his mountain bike literally almost hit a bear <laughs> that ran across the trail. So there was a bear in the area, but luckily he didn't bother me. So the helicopter uh, was the first, first ones to arrive. And there were three park medics. I, I know that they all have advanced medical skills. I don't know which ones are EMT, which ones are par paramedic. But it was three rangers who I recognized and knew I'd worked with before. And actually had to ask who was going to be chief medical because they were all very skilled people. Um, they landed 150 yards up the trail, 200 yards up the trail, it's sort of a little a gully that had less, fewer trees in it. They were able to set down, and I went up to them, helped them carry stuff back. It was, I think, just after the helicopter took off again that one, the first team member who was out biking on his own showed up and told us that he had just seen a bear. Team members were responding at that point in sort of a ground effort. Uh, we had two people on e-mountain bikes that arrived, and I think that they had taken our, our four-wheeler, our Razor, up the face of Snow King, to the end of the road and then ridden down to us. And I think maybe one or two other people came down on foot that got there later in the process. I remember asking Ted how, I, I knew that um, in the position I was in, it wasn't the most comfortable position. 
and I was using a you know a certain amount of energy to kind of just hold my my myself in that position so I could breathe. And I was like, I can do this for a while. I can't do it for, I can't do it indefinitely. I can't do it for six hours, but you know, an hour or two like this, I'll be fine. And I'll, I'll that's something I can definitely do. So I asked Ted, can you give me a general time frame on how long this is going to take? And I recall his answer was, it's going to be at more than an hour, but not hours. So probably somewhere between one and two hours. And he was spot on. I think it was, you know, an hour, 15 minutes or so that we heard the helicopter pass over and then they looked for a place to land. And then I, you know, as all this is happening, I'm still face down on the trail, but Ted and Jason are narrating and telling me what's going on. God bless modern medicine, because uh, Jason and I could not move Brian in any way without causing intense pain. But once they get the appropriate painkillers on board, things do get a lot easier. And we, they were able to get him to roll over, lay on his back on what we call a vacuum mattress or a vacuum splint um, that acts as spinal mobilization as well as a relatively comfortable pad for the patient to be on and that we can actually fly people out in a short-haul technique just on that but wrapped in a, a, a bag called a Bowman bag. At that point, Brian was either loopy enough or, or whatever that we were able to lift him up in the vacuum mattress and carry him over. They gave me, and I, I will be somewhat hazy on the details of this, but um, they gave me ketamine and I believe fentanyl and oxygen. And... Um, and sorry, what? CNX. And so the fentanyl was, they said, intended to just sort of dissociate me from this as a traumatic experience. So when I think back on it, it doesn't, I don't, you know, have any sort of PTSD from it. And it, I don't associate it with like a, a harrowing experience. And I'd say that that worked. So they actually rolled me onto my side. I was just on my right side. Even now, lying on my back on a hard surface is the one thing that hurts um, just from the way that the ribs broke. So I could sort of see what was a little bit of what was going on. And I remember being, despite the fentanyl and the ketamine, lucid, although some of the the recollection of all the events is probably not 100%, but I, I was able to process everything that was going on. So they'd ask me questions that I could respond you know, I, I remember getting, they, they picked up the, the bag, put it into the, the litter, brought the litter over to the helicopter, loaded that on. I remember lifting off. I think part of the reason that they give people ketamine is that someone in that situation might have an urge to kind of panic when you're suspended from the bottom of a helicopter flying over a mountain. But that was the kind of thing that I even at the moment was like, I think this will be fun. Like, I'm looking forward to this in a situation like that, it's totally out of your hands, anything that happens to you. So just relax and enjoy it. So I remember, you know, we, we hover up over Snow King, the litter is pointed in the direction. I'm like, oh, there's glory. And then it twists a little bit. And like now looking over Snow King, there are the radio towers. Then looking up and like, oh, we're looking back up Cache Creek. And then we set down in uh, the bottom of Cache Creek in, I think, uh, Patty Ewing's Meadow. And I look up and I see a belt buckle and I realized that must be Cody Lockhart. <laughs> and so uh, Cody is another team member who's there to, to meet the heli as, as it puts me down. And I hear him say, hi, Brian. And I'm like, hey, Cody. And so then they load me into the ambulance and I'm on my way. So again, one of the great things of having you know your two close friends on this experience is that they know 
they're in the same position as I am in a lot of ways with families and our kids being the same age. They know exactly the right time to call Maggie and tell her, okay, you know, Brian's in this situation. He's, he's going to be okay, but we're, he's going to have to get a heli ride. Meet us at the hospital. Like they can give her that information and I can completely trust these guys to do it in a way that is how I would want it done. So I don't, you know, they don't have to ask me a lot of questions about it. I think I waited till the helicopter was on its way or maybe maybe the first time it circled over to call Maggie because calling her and telling her Brian's really badly hurt and I have no idea how we're getting him out seemed like a bad way to go. So being able to call her and say, Brian had a bike crash, he's injured but he's okay and we're going to be evacuating him in the next few minutes with a helicopter seemed like a really good way to break the news and suggested she drive towards the hospital and meet him there. And it was interesting timing that she actually saw you flying. They checked me into the ER, and I was met there by another search and rescue volunteer, who was the ER doc at the time. And they sent me in for a CT scan and just to get a picture of my entire torso and really get a, a good image of what was going on. They came back and AJ Wheeler, he brought the CT scan up on the on the monitor, and then he got called out immediately. So Maggie, my wife, is there, and she's like, I want to see what's going on here. So she starts scrolling down the CT scan images. And at this point, I was like, I know I'm hurt. Like, I don't know how bad. I hope I'm not making a really big deal out of nothing, right? And we start scrolling down, and you can see, okay, there's a broken rib. That's clearly broken. That's clearly broken. Like, And we just kept counting, and we got to one that just kind of looked like it had been blown apart a little bit and we're like whoa that's really broken and just then dr wheeler comes back in and he says oh you've found the one we're worried about and it was the one where the the fragment was sticking 90 degrees into my the the lung cavity at this point you you got eight broken ribs he didn't tell me exactly where they all were you have a punctured lung and so we're going to keep you here for a little bit like the punctured lung we're, we're hopeful that it'll just resolve on its own like and I, I didn't have the sucking chest wound it's a technical terms pneumothorax and I didn't even totally realize at the time that I had that so it did end up resolving on its own all they did was they, they kept me in the hospital for two nights sort of for observation to make sure that the, the pneumothorax didn't get worse but as far as the fractures there was no there was no surgery since they were all on the backside. The doctor said that if, if you have really bad fractures in the front or the side of your rib cage, you can they can sometimes go in and plate that and do surgery. But when they're on the back, they really just prefer to let that let your body figure it out um, because there's enough tissue on, on the back adjacent to the spine that they end up causing a lot of you know, tissue damage in trying to get to the bones to fix them and that your body has a pretty good map of what it's supposed to look like and it will figure itself out and put itself back together. And I said, really? Like, how's it gonna figure that out? Like, <laughs> but it did. And, you know, all things considered, I, I got out of the hospital two days later. It was pretty painful for a couple weeks. So I did not do much of anything for about a week. I really just sat on the couch and watched the Tour de France and the track and field world championships and a lot of uh, sitcoms. After a week or so, I went back to work and just took it easy. I joke around and saying, you know, the, the accident wasn't really the, the worst part of my summer. It's the stuff that hurt before the accident and that still hurts because I'm 52 years old. That's really the problem. You know, it's the back pain, the, the, the knee pain, the ankle pain, stuff like that. 
I think I still owe you guys a margarita from Pika's for hauling my bike out. So thank you. What are some of the lessons that you learned about this whole incident? The main takeaway I have is that I think, you know, riding out at the bike park with my son had given me a certain level of confidence. And I was excited to be out with my buddies. It was a, a high energy, high stoke day and that we were having a, a great time and we like hanging out with each other and we, we like doing these types of adventures. And so I think my spirit was pretty high and I was feeling the flow. And I forgot, frankly, that the backcountry trails are not the same thing as the, the, the manicured groomed trails at the bike park. You know, there's, there's hidden hazards. There's the trails are narrower and you have to take it a little bit easier. And so that's, um, you know, it's one thing I, I generally am pretty careful about, but I think just in that moment and combined with, you know, recently feeling like my downhilling is getting a lot better. I just kind of got caught up there and that proved to be a, a painful mistake. And I, I hit an obstacle I couldn't see and, or I didn't see. And, um, it had pretty bad consequences. So even, you know, the, the, one of the other lessons there is just even a simple ride in your backyard can still turn into a pretty hazardous situation. And that's true, whether it's skiing glory or riding around snow king. I plan to be a little more prepared with what I take in my pack. I will have a spot device, um, even for simple, quote, simple stuff like this probably have some sort of painkiller it's a little more potent than advil in my pack um in the event that it's a you know you get an injury where you you might be able to do a self-rescue but it, it would be hard without some intervention you know it's just it is a good reminder when you're riding with buddies i know i've ridden with groups of guys where the guys go off the front and they never check back and they just assume that everyone behind them is doing fine and that's not always the case so i appreciate that these guys had the presence of mind to be like, hey, wait a minute, you know, he should have caught us by now, and that they did check back. That made a big difference, too. The backyard can be dangerous. We had at least two other calls for service in that same sort of Farron's Upper Wilson Canyon area within a couple of weeks of Brian's accident. So it happens a lot. I think the accidents that we respond to up on the pass on the free ride trails get maybe a little bit more press because it's a dangerous area, but just somehow that, that hits the newspaper a little bit more, but you can get hurt in a lot of different places. We had, um, at least one call out for a bike accident just in the Cash Creek area on Putt-Putt this summer. And, and it's, you can get hurt on the easy trails too. A, having the helicopter available, that it was not on a fire, that it was not attending to another rescue. All those things had to kind of happen and fall in place. And thankfully they did. So I was enormously grateful that it was available and they were able to respond to me and to have that capacity is is a huge asset for this community but it's pretty tenuous in the summertime it could very easily have been on a fire we were lucky that there was no fire in the area the last two or three summers it wouldn't probably wouldn't have been available thank you for listening to the fine line i'm matt hansen Editing and sound are by Melinda Binks. Our theme song is by Ann and Pete Sibley, with additional music provided by Ben Winship. The interviews were recorded in the studios of KHOL 89.1 FM in downtown Jackson. This podcast is produced by Backcountry Zero. 
a project of the Teton County Search and Rescue Foundation to reduce fatalities and serious injuries in the Tetons. Learn more at backcountryzero.com.